This episode of the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast was recorded on March 22nd, 2019 during the WSU Plant Science Symposium. The theme of the symposium was Foundations for the Future, Embracing New Agricultural Technologies. As part of the program, five innovative researchers from across the U.S. and the world agreed to speak about their research. All five researchers also agreed to sit down with me for a few minutes to explain their work and how it may relate to wheat growers in eastern Washington. Welcome back to our special series from the 2019 WSU Plant Science Symposium. My guest today is Syed Azam Ali. In 2011, Professor Syed was appointed as the founding Chief Executive Officer of the Crops for the Future Research Center. Based near Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Crops for the Future is the world's first center dedicated to underutilized crops for food and non-food uses. The essential problem tackled by Crops for the Future is that only four major crops now provide over 60% of the world's food. This extreme lack of diversity in agriculture carries severe risks for global food supply especially for a rising global population in a hotter, more volatile world. To alleviate these risks, Crops for the Future aims to unravel the potential of currently underutilized crops to diversify the global food basket with nutritious crops in the face of climate change. Hello, Syed. Hello, Drew. So, how are we going to feed the estimated 10 billion people who are going to be on this planet in 2050? and a planet that's also hotter than it is today. Well, the first thing to, to do is recognize how much success we've already had. We have actually got global food security. We can always discuss distribution problems and waste and obviously you know transport chains and things. But the four crops we have already are super crops. They're wonderful. They have fed us and they actually provide the raw materials for most of the food. And maybe something like 65% of the world's food is coming from four crops. But that brings a problem with it. Because whilst it, they have been successful at feeding 7 billion, 7.4 billion, I think now, a global population, will there be enough to feed 10 billion? And as you say, on a hotter planet. And if they won't, by themselves, we must look for other crops to complement them because we're putting enormous pressure on those four crops to actually successfully not just feed us, but they're providing fuel and they're providing, of course, animal feed and they're even now providing biomaterials. And that is a risk. If one of those crops fails, we all suffer. Okay. So what are some of these forgotten foods and, and why are they so important to you? Well, we call them forgotten foods, but actually we mean forgotten crops because okay. the crops, of course, could be raw materials for lots of things. So we ourselves don't list the crops. We don't say, here are the next 10. These are going to be the new, you know, we talk about quinoa, don't we? We talk about these crops that suddenly become very significant. And if we do it one by one, it won't really solve the problem. Each crop has got its own potential. But actually what we're trying to do is identify an approach that we can say, actually you have to look at each crop following a, a basic rules. The rules are the same. You know, We have to start growing it. What is the potential in different conditions? What can we get from it critically? Have we got a market for it? If we're going to store the germplasm in gene banks, that's great. But if we can actually use these crops, we must find an end use. And actually what I've learned from 30 years of work in this, uh, in this field is that we have to start at the market end, not at the research genetic resource end. Of course, we've got to provide the resource 
uh, later, mm -hmm. but we need a pipeline. You know, are we looking for energy crops? Are we looking for nutrition? Are we looking for new ways to, to make snacks that are actually uh, lower in fat and, you know, obviously higher in protein? These sorts of issues are all related to what is the end use that we actually want from our crops. And we call them forgotten foods because there's so many of these crops, of course, that can help diversify the human diet. And that really seems to have been what's captured interest is the forgotten food title rather than the forgotten crops okay. title. Okay. I know uh, even here in the States, uh, I, before coming to Washington, I was a dryland cropping system specialist in Nebraska trying to diversify the cropping systems. And the markets are really important. So we could identify a lot of crops that sounded really interesting. But until you can develop that marketplace and that whole chain of how do you move the crop to to the mark from the field to the market, that's all very important. And even here in Washington, uh, I think we see the requirement to diversify our farming systems, but it's still difficult to find the markets. And I imagine that you just uh, multiply that by a factor of 10 or more when you go to some of these uh, other places in the world where they're not don't have the infrastructure we have here in the United States. You're right, but I think if you mentioned your your previous life, this has been for me, and I'm very pleased that actually I'm at Washington State University because my PhD was in physics, and a very famous alumnus here, um, Professor Galen Campbell, was ah, was the yes. co-supervisor, or actually very close friend of my supervisor, John Monteith, and they you know they did some fundamental work in the 70s and 80s on it defining physics, biophysics, and how we actually understand the whole system. And at that time, it wasn't very fashionable. We were basically either agriculturalists or, or you know, sort of physicists. But what I learned from that is there are a lot of crops around that have suffered and survived. In other words, they're still around without help, without research, without improvement. What we have to do is actually reconnect with those crops. Some of them will be good. Some of them will be very climate resilient and actually will have properties that we can now look at. So the journey has been a long one, but I really feel now there is public interest in diversity. I think as we look at our student body here, a lot of our students are very interested in like quinoa that you mentioned and some of these alternative crops. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and maybe it's a way to attract students. How, how do you see us I, getting I more students the consumer, in the agriculture? You know, at the end of the day, the consumer is getting a bit weary and, of course, eating very similar foods all over the world is exciting at the beginning. But later on, you want to go somewhere and eat something different. You yeah. want to find something which you hadn't seen before. And therefore, there is, a, I think, a cultural drive now to find new food and look at new ingredients again. And there's a dietary requirement. And one of the interesting things, in fact, one of the very uh, concerning things is uh, we often think of climate change as it's going to affect the yield of crops. We think of heat and drought and CO2, of course, itself. What it's doing is it's affecting the nutritional content of crops. And this is work. It's called the Great Nutrient Collapse. And it's work being done in experiments around uh, the USA as well as around the world, looking at the effect of carbon dioxide and the effect it has on micronutrient content of the staple crop. So if you take zinc, selenium, iron, vitamins, they're decreasing with elevated carbon dioxide. Now, if we just depend on those crops, we're going to have a problem because that's where our micronutrients are coming from. And there's other work now showing that the, the more diverse your diet, we don't quite know why, but the more species you eat, the healthier you are because the number of species counts for more than the ingredients within them. There are obviously interactions in your gut things which we haven't really fully understood, but it's clearly associated with healthier lifestyles. And therefore, diversity is actually a health benefit as well as a cultural benefit. 
So you see this diversity as one of the emerging trends in our food systems around the globe today? I'm convinced of that because the big industry is now getting interested. And when the big industry gets interested, clearly they are seeing that there's a potential. Now, I've been around for long enough to know that 20 years ago, if I said, I've got a new crop for you, it would have fallen on dead ears because, deaf ears, because they would have said, well, actually, we've got perfectly good products already. Can we just improve the product? Can we actually make something out of a potato that looks different? That might give us a different market. The ingredient would still be the same. Now, actually, the agri-food sector is saying, actually, we want some more crops. We want ingredients that look and taste and feel different to the ones we've got now. Now, once they're interested and the consumer is driving this, not the agri-food sector, consumers are demanding more interesting food, quite frankly. And the interesting dynamic is it's coming from the north. You know, there's change, food, culture change. You know, a country like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Germany, um, I'm sure large parts of the USA, people are now saying, actually, we're very interested in, in artisanal food or food that's got an identity that's different from what everybody else is eating. And that's also related, of course, to, to lifestyle. Now, we might say it's all middle class, and you might just turn around and say, well, actually, you can afford that. What about poor people? But it's also part of that direction because it's a time bomb. If you actually take health now, um, we have more fat people than thin people. We have more overnourished than undernourished people on the planet. And one of the big time bombs, uh, demographic time bombs we're facing is something called hidden hunger. Have you heard of hidden hunger? I have not. Tell us a little bit about that. So hidden hunger is when you look well-fed, but actually you're short of micronutrients. And that means your diet, you're eating plenty of calories. Of course, you look pretty good, but you, know, you might be overweight, but at the end of the day, you don't look ill. But your micronutrient deficiencies are affecting. So if you think zinc and selenium and iron, these are critical micronutrients that affect brain development. So young children who are given a very monotonous diet end up having micronutrient deficiencies, which, of course, they've got for life because it affects their brain development right. and they're becoming stunted. So we have a generation now of children in middle class or affluent areas of the world who are actually micronutrient deficient. We call that hidden hunger. And that's why diet's going to be so important because who's going to pay the bill? Okay. So can you describe or um, tell us about one or two of these forgotten foods or forgotten crops that uh, maybe can give us an example of what you're doing and how, what kind of impact give it you may a couple, have? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a plant called Moringa. Now, Moringa actually grows as a tree. It's a shrub and you can keep chopping the leaves off. So it, it's once, you know, it's perennial, keep growing it. But it's got multiple uses. Now, in traditional Indian diets, the pods become very, the pods are long, they call it the drumstick tree because okay. it's like a drumstick. And of course, that's what people eat. But what we now know is the leaves contain enormous amounts of protein, very healthy, and vitamins. And what we're doing is drying the leaves and making them into a powder, into, into something which you can then make into a soup, or you can add to noodles, or you can make into uh, snack foods and cookies and biscuits. And of course, it's very nutritious. But another name for the Moringa is it's called the Miracle Tree because it grows in very, very poor conditions. It originated in the Himalayas, but it's been spread across Africa and India and Southeast Asia. And that is a tree that's really got the credentials to be a crop of the future because it's multi-use, resilient, and nutritious. 
Now that could be made into lots of products because of course it's green. The leaves are green because right. you know there are certain some people would find a green food unattractive because we eat green food all the time. <laughs> but that could be that could be addressed. Another crop we've got is an African legume called Bambara groundnut. And we've been growing that and working on that for a very long time. It's, it's almost our signature crop. And that is one that is grown right across the tropics on a small scale. And again, it's drought resistant, it's nutritious, and we're now finding we can make it into food and cuisine. This thing about forgotten foods, old recipes which we can rediscover on land that's no longer suitable for the big crops. And that's the breakthroughs. Can we grow crops on land that increasingly becomes too vulnerable for our major crops? Okay. So um, Eastern Washington, wheat is kind of king. We grow a lot of wheat here. We export a lot of wheat here. Um, how can some of what you're doing, um, what are some lessons we can take from that for this part of the world? I think the first place I would suggest, and I'm not from here and I don't pretend to, to, to advise you on what to do, but what I would ask uh, growers to think about is take a, a sort of baseline and say, what could I grow here? Don't immediately start growing it, but use our database. We, we've developed uh, models and databases, knowledge systems for about 2,300 crops. And that means we're not going to tell you which to grow until we've run that model and said, your soil, your conditions, your environment, your climate, your season gives us a list of maybe 20 crops that would be suitable here. From those, we've got two which might have economic potential. From those, we've got one that really think we think could be worth growing. So we're taking out a lot because we realize it's farmers who, who take the risk. If you're going to take a new crop on and we're telling you to do it, you better be. we better be sure that we're giving you the right advice. So we would do an initial um, analysis of your situation uh, come up with a list of crops and then you decide what is the end use do you want? Do you want it as a break crop? Do you want it in a rotation? Do you want it as an economic niche crop, specialty ingredients? These are all issues we can address once we found out whether you can actually grow it or not and what the increasing risk will be. The big thing is as we get into more and more, I don't know if your seasons are now becoming very, very um, fuzzy because it's not clear what is winter and what is spring. I notice it's <laughs> cold outside, but... Um, it's, it's very bright and sunny today, and it, it, there might be a late snow, who knows? These sort of conditions are more frequent, the, the unpredictability. Right. And we've got to build our unpredictability into the farming system because we can't guarantee the, the, the seasons anymore. So if our growers wanted to go to your uh, organization and find out what crops might work here, where would they go to get that information? Well, I think they'd do two things. First, I'd go onto our website, which is www.com cffresearch.org and that would give you our website and therefore they get an introduction to, to CFF across the future. But I would suggest then they talk to our knowledge base people and say, actually, we'd like to run this model. We won't even come and do it. We basically ask your location and then say, uh, given your climate and soil, this is what is potentially growable. And of course, you could look at that and say, actually, that's nonsense. That crop could never grow here. And you might be right. You know, we're not pretending we're going to be perfect first time, but we will reduce the risks by coming up with a list of viable crops that are matched against the agroclimate conditions that you have. And then we can start from there and say, is it worth looking at these crops as, as potential? Okay. And again, that's cffresearch.org. That's the one. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This is a very interesting topic. I'm sure our growers will be interested in it, and I appreciate you taking the time to thank visit with me. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. 
Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.